0: All right, welcome. Welcome, Mercy House. Uh, I'm Patrick. I'm an elder here at Mercy House and a PhD student over at UMass. Uh, and I am lucky enough to be involved in getting to take part in this series that we're doing right now, Forever Family. And um, we're kind of most of the way through the series. I'm just going to kind of tell you a little bit about where we've been so far. Uh, So part of what we've been talking about is how you get into the forever family. And and Robert walked us through that a few weeks ago. And the the sort of short of it was you get into the family by being born into it. And really also by being adopted into it by the saving work of Christ. So you you get into the family by being born in, by grace through faith because of Christ's saving work. And Tommy talked a little bit about, so like once you're in the family... What are you going to do? Uh, you get freedom through Christ's saving work, and Paul talks about how you should be using that freedom, namely by walking in the Spirit. And Tommy talked a lot about what does that look like. So last week and this week, I've been wanting to spend some time thinking about uh, once we are walking in the Spirit, what does that mean for our fellowship together? And last week, my focus was on our unity together and the way that using the gifts of the Spirit can help us build each other up in unity. And this week I want to focus on love, and specifically on the model of love that Christ uh, depicts for us in uh, the upper room, That you know, the, the passage that Tommy just read for us. I appreciate that. So I think in this passage we actually get a kind of re-rehearsing of the things we've already talked about. So I'm going to just kind of quickly go over the first part of the passage to show how it, it tells us how we get into the family and what we're going to do once we're in the family. So to start off, let's just remember that to get in the family, you need to be washed by Christ. I'll say that again. To get into the family, you need to be washed by Christ. So I'll, I'm just going to read the first part of that passage again from verse 1 through verse 11. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So in this situation where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and having this conversation with Peter, I think he's rehearsing something that we've already dwelt on in this series, that to get into the family, you need to be washed by Christ. And really that is you need to be able to accept the saving work of Christ. And notice that to to be washed by Christ, there's nothing the disciples have to do. All they have to do is just sit there, right, and accept it. Um, but it does require a heart that can accept that humble saving work, right? For Peter, that was really difficult in that moment for his master to get down on his knees and get dirty and touch his his feet, a really, uh, you know, humiliating act in, in their culture. And that's an obstacle for a lot of people for entering into the family, the idea of accepting a loving sacrifice For your sin is for many people for a variety of reasons distasteful or just you know abhorrent the problem is that if you can't accept that sacrifice on your own behalf and if you can't be washed by christ then you are not you can't enter into the family and you're not then empowered to go and wash other people's feet in the way that christ is asking so that leads us to the next kind of portion that once you're in the family the way you need to act is you need to imitate Christ by washing others' feet. So once you're in the family, you need to imitate Christ by washing others' feet. So I'm just going to read the next little passage from 12 through verse 20 real quick. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is talking about the Spirit right there when he says, when he's talking about the one whom he sends, and he's giving the disciples a picture of of what it looks like when we receive the Spirit. Namely, and you know, what it looks like when we walk in the Spirit, like what Tommy talked about. Namely, that we're going to be empowered to imitate Him and to wash each other's feet. And as he puts it, a servant is not greater than his master. So if Jesus is, you know, stooping down and getting dirty and serving us, and He's our Lord and Master, then we can't do anything less than that for each other. If we're, if we're going to, to be unwilling to do that, then we are in effect saying, I'm better than Jesus. That's the challenge of that. So last week I said in my, when I started talking about fellowship, that fellowship, according to Paul, and in, you know, in the New Testament, is a unified response by members of, of a community to a specific call. And here, Jesus, I think, is giving his disciples the call. He's saying the call, if you're going to be in this family, is to imitate Christ. That's, that's the call. All right, so where I want to camp out today is in the last part of the passage that we read. I think the, the rest of it really sets up thinking about what does it mean when Jesus say, says to love one another? And I think that in giving that love command, Jesus is being really explicit about what it means to imitate him and to wash each other's feet. It, it means loving each other. And it means loving each other in a, in a really particular kind of way, a way that might be surprising for some of us and is definitely really challenging for, for all of us, I think. So I'm going to read that last bit of passage and then, and then spend some time talking about it says, when he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the disciples are about to face this massive disruption in their community, right? Jesus is about to be taken from them to to a place where they can't go because he's about to ascend, and they're going to be stuck here on earth. And they're going to be separated, a lot of them, from each other. It's going to be really confusing. They're going to be facing persecution like they've never faced before. And in the face of all that, Jesus has one command for them. He says, love each other just like I've loved you. And the kind of love he has in mind is like the kind that he's just demonstrated for them. So I have two things today that I want to say about this love command one is that, on, on the one hand, the love command was not radical. That there was a way in which it was just what they would have expected. But on the other hand, that it was incredibly radical. So let me kind of explain what I have in mind. So let me just start by talking about how was the love command not radical? In, which, in what way was it just what they would have expected? To do that, I want to talk about the culture in which Jesus and his disciples grew up and the culture they, they lived, the culture they were a part of. So cultures in ancient Palestine and Jewish culture in particular were what's known as collectivist or strong group societies. So like one of the characteristics of strong group societies is that in these kinds of societies, the most intimate, uh, loving, and like strongest loyalties or most important relationships are from the immediate family so if you're part of a strong group society where your most intimate relationships come from are generally your siblings because they're in the same phase of life from, as you and they're in your immediate family but also like your parents uh, your children maybe your cousins or aunts and uncles not your spouse uh, is is one thing that we're going to talk about today but those are the most important relationships in this kind of society And I want to highlight a couple of ways that these strong group values tend to differ from, like, American individualist values. And keeping in mind, obviously, that not all of us in Mercy House are from America, and maybe some of us didn't grow up in an individualist society. So for some of you, maybe strong group uh, societies or the strong group aspects of Jesus culture might actually feel more at home than living in America does. But here are a couple things that I think are worth thinking about. For one, people in strong group societies tend to make decisions primarily based on, like, what's good for the family. And their expectation is that if the family is doing well, then benefits are going to flow down to the individual. So they make decisions so that the family does well and expect that it's going to go well for them as a result. The opposite is really true in individualist cultures. People in individualist cultures think, I need to make sure that my life is going well, and then if it does, that's going to be good for my family as a result. You know, like the benefits are going to flow up to the family. So the ordering is really opposite. Another important difference is that people in strong group societies tend to have closer, more intimate relationships uh, with their siblings, like I mentioned before, especially more than they do with their spouses. And definitely in individualist societies, this is the opposite. These things are really related to each other. So in an individualist society, why do people get married? Well, it's because like they're in love, right? Like they got to know somebody, they thought, "This is who I want to spend my life with, this is what's going to make me happy." And so they get married to that person. In a strong group society, people tend to get married because the marriage is going to benefit their family, like the, the person they're going to get married to. Comes from another family group, and that such that if you know we have this marriage, then it's going to benefit each family in a really mutually beneficial way. And oftentimes, they don't even know the person that they're getting married to until it's until it happens, it's just a very different way of, of approaching that relationship. Oftentimes, in a strong group society, even after marriage, uh, it's very hard for the wife. So, like in Jesus's culture, for example, the wife leaves her family, and goes and joins her husband's family, and she's not automatically considered part of this new family. She's like an outsider just living with her husband's family. So this, is, this can kind of help us understand why in that culture infertility was really hard, especially for women, in a way that we often don't get, because one way of integrating herself into her new family was to have children who were a part of that immediate family and a part of her immediate family. And there was more of a closeness she could purchase that way. I think another interesting thing this helps us understand, just as an aside, is the story of of Mary and Elizabeth in Luke's gospel. So if you remember, Mary, when she's pregnant with Jesus, goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. And it's, uh, it seems like either Elizabeth is her cousin or her aunt, and Mary goes to visit her for a period of about three months while they're both pregnant. Now, if you think about this, if you're an American, and you think about in American culture, what would you think if like a pregnant woman goes and visits her like pregnant aunt while uh, for like three months during you know their pregnancies? Like, what what would you infer about their home situation or something like that, if that was going on. You'd probably think, like, wow, she really had to get away from her husband if she was, like, running off to her aunt's house for three months during her pregnancy, and, like, man, that must be stressful for them. But once we recognize the culture that Mary and Elizabeth are a part of, we, we realize, oh, probably this was, for both of them, a really intimate, important relationship and just a really special time for both of them. All right, so... Another thing that was going on in the, the, what's called the Second Temple Period of Judaism, which is like the period about five, in the 500 or so years before Christ was born, is that they were telling a lot of stories about siblings. They didn't tell like Disney-style stories about romantic relationship, you know. They told stories about sibling rivalry and treachery, about sibling loyalty, because those were the kinds of stories that really captured their imagination. And one story they loved to tell and retell was the story of Joseph. So if you're familiar with that, you can kind of quickly figure out, oh yeah, that would, that would be really compelling if that was your most intimate kind of love relationship, because Joseph got really uh, put one over on by his brothers. If you remember, he was, he was uh, sold into slavery by his brothers, who then told his father he was dead. But then he also remained loyal to his brothers. So you have both of those dynamics in that story of of sibling treachery and sibling loyalty. Years later, when he could have really gotten one back on them, he instead remained loyal to his siblings. And there's this work called the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs from that period in which an author puts in Joseph's own words his reasons for why he didn't exact revenge on his brothers. And it says, so you see, my children, how many things I endured in order not to bring my brothers into disgrace. You therefore love one another, and in patient endurance conceal one another's shortcomings. God is delighted by harmony among brothers and by the intention of a kind heart that takes pleasure in goodness. So like the big takeaway from the Joseph story for Jesus's own contemporaries was to love your siblings, to like a really extreme degree. You know, even if they sell you into slavery, still help them out and remain loyal to them. So how, how does all that connect up with Jesus and his disciples? I've been kind of rambling to some degree about uh, strong group societies and Jesus's culture and whatnot. Well, remember that Jesus's disciples have been for years at this point living together, sharing a common purse, traveling everywhere together, sleeping in the same place. They've been cultivating a family group and basically being and identifying as brothers together. So when Jesus tells them to love each other, I think he's appealing to a sense of brotherly love, a cultural understanding of love that they all shared and w- and would be totally not radical for them to apply to each other. They already saw themselves as brothers, and their culture told them, this is how you love your brothers. Now, on the other hand, like I said, the the love command is radical, and Jesus clearly takes it to be. He calls it a new commandment, right? And he says that this is how the world is going to know that Jesus's disciples are his, that they love each other. So clearly it's like, if you do this, you're going to stand out. This is a radical thing. So why? Well, maybe, I mean, you might already be able to guess what the answer is, but I think the answer is that these guys aren't actually brothers in the way that the culture understands brotherhood. They, the, their culture understands brotherhood in terms of the natural family. And for the most part, all of these disciples come from different natural families. And so what Jesus is telling them and giving them this love command is he's saying, all of you who come from different families, you're now brothers. Treat each other like it. Apply that that understanding of brotherly love that your culture has given you to people outside of your natural family. And that was very radical. So this is not at all the first time that Jesus has... Uh, in his teaching ministry talked about uh, family and about how his disciples might be relating to each other as family. And I think it's worth taking a look back at some of those moments in his teaching ministry to get a better sense of actually what he's telling his disciples when he's giving them the love command. So I want to do like some flashbacks right now uh, to other parts of his teaching ministry. So there are a number of passages where I think Jesus appears to draw a line in the sand. And he basically says, you need to choose either your natural family or discipleship, one or the other. One example is from Matthew 34 through 38. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So one thing to notice about that passage is Jesus doesn't talk about spouses. I mean, this is like a a sort of reiteration of points I made earlier. The most important relationships are the ones he brings up in this passage, right? Mothers and fathers and children and siblings and things like that. He's saying, look, all those people in your household that you live with that are members of your family, you got to choose me over them. And there's a line in the sand right there. In Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, one inclination we have, I think, when we read something like that, is to sort of massage the meaning, or sometimes people will say, like, domesticate the passage, um, and what that means is basically, you know, like to domesticate an animal, it's sort of like come up with uh, an interpretation that makes it safe to bring home and to live with in a way that's comfortable. Because, you know, it's not comfortable to say that to follow Jesus, you need to hate your mom and dad or to, to hate your life. That's very uncomfortable. But I think what ha- so, so you know, we'll say that Jesus was being hyperbolic and really all it... All he means is just God has to be a bigger priority than these other things. That's, that's what it means. But I, I think what we're missing when we do those domesticizations or those, those kind of readings is Jesus was calling his disciples to abandon their families in a strong group culture. And really, in that context, that was a way of publicly declaring that you hate your family and that you hate or like, despise your own self, that you're not valuing yourself in that culture. So you're missing, I think, when we sort of try and avoid the hardness of the passage, just how radical the call is. And you can see just how hard it is for people in his culture when you see things like, for example, in Matthew 8 21 through 22, we see a disciple who really wants to follow Jesus but would much rather wait until after he's done discharging all his duties to his parents. So he, he wants to do it, but he wants to like be done with his parents first. So it says, another of his disciples, of the disciples came to him, or excuse me, said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So N.T. Wright, in talking about this passage, says the only explanation... For Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisaged loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternate family. I'll I'll say that one more time. The only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisaged loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternate family. So I think when Jesus is drawing these lines in the sand, what he's really saying is it's your family or my family First you got to make a choice. And the idea that Jesus is actually calling people to an alternate family is even clearer in some other passages. We We can look at Mark 10, verses 29 through 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So, you know, the brothers and sisters and mothers and children Jesus is talking about in that passage are the forever family. He's saying to the disciples who he's asking to, like, leave their natural families to follow him. He's saying, you're, when you leave, you're not just going to be this individual Adam left out alone in society, you're going to be jumping into a new forever family, one that's going to be, uh, you know, part of your family for eternity. And Jesus affirms this family as his own, as his own family identity publicly. In, In Matthew 12, we see this. He says, or it says, while he was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to pe- to speak to him. So he's giving a sermon, and his his mom and his brothers want to talk. And he replied to the man who told him, "Who is my mother and who are my brothers?" And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, or excuse me, is my brother and sister, and my mother." So I think when we really wrestle with these teachings about family and really like focus on the line in the sand that Jesus is drawing, what we find is that the way that a lot of us tend to think about biblical priorities or what biblical priorities look like is off. So a common way that we tend to think about biblical priorities is we think, Uh, It says, we think the Bible says that first comes God and then comes our family and then church and then other people. And that's like generally how the Bible tells us to order our priorities. But when we look at what Jesus is saying in these passages, the priority structure is more like this. It says first comes God and then our forever family, the church, and then the natural family, and then others. There's an inversion there of, of what we expect. And that, that does not mean that, you know, Jesus is rejecting any, the nuclear family or any, any responsibilities that you have to your children or your parents or your siblings or anything like that. There is a lot in the New Testament that I haven't talked about today that shows Jesus really values the natural family and his disciples do, too. But Jesus is calling people who are part of a strong group society to take those relationships and put them below the forever family, and that is incredibly radical. Okay, so like I said, a lot of us as Americans, you know, who grew up in America and live in an American, in American society are, are individualists, and so you might wonder right now, like, what does the love command mean then for people living in an individualist society? Because we're not part of a strong group society. Well, I don't think uh, on the one hand that it means that we should like try to become strong group people somehow, like reprogram our, uh, our minds or, you know, get rid of our cultural sensibilities in some, in some way. That would be not very feasible. And I don't think that's actually what uh, Jesus is asking people to do, is to get rid of their cultural identities. It does mean, though, I think that the love command is asking more of us than we probably expect as individualists. And that's one thing that I want us to really focus in on this morning. So for one, it's a commandment right? It's not, a, it's not just a suggestion. It's not something that Jesus is saying, like, take this under advisement as like something that, you know, you might think about doing. And as individualists, like I said before, we tend to focus on uh, ourselves first, on like flourishing as individuals first. And then we think, okay, then that's going to help things go well for my family. And if we have that priority structure I talked about before, then we think, then that's going to help things go well for my church family. Like if there's, you know, energy left over after pouring into myself and my family, then I can like pour into the church. That's not what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, I'm commanding you to love one another where one another is your forever family. And so commands don't take convenience into account. And that's not to say that, you know, there aren't times in your life when you need to uh, pull back and that we need to have grace for ourselves and for each other because like, th- like th- things can be hard. We're in the middle of a pandemic and like sometimes, you know, you might have had a baby and you can't like put the same amount of energy into certain things as you normally do. Like we, we have to exercise wisdom in the way that we do these things, but it is to recognize that this is a command and we need to treat it that way. Another thing to recognize is that the kind of love that Jesus is talking about is a strong group kind of love. And what I mean by that is that it's a, it's a love that takes the, the group to be first and expects the benefits to flow down to the individual. So when we're loving each other in the family of God, in the forever family, we're doing so in a way that models what Christ did. We're, we're trying to Uh, get dirty and serve everyone else and expect that the benefits are going to come back to us. That's what he did in the upper room. He served every single one of the disciples and said, this is the model for what I expect you to do for each other. And, you know, if you remember what he said in Mark 10, he said, "There's there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So the expectation is first, you follow Christ and his gospel, and the benefits of the family are going to flow down to you as a result. And that's really hard for us, especially those of us who are individualists to hear. It's hard for us to align our priorities in that way. But that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to. I do want to say that there's like a really important caveat that comes with this. I, I'm talking about how we need to love each other in a way that puts the family first. And that kind of language is the kind of language I think tends to be abused by cult leaders, especially also by churches where abuse is being hushed up. And so what it, what it means to put family church is never that we should allow ourselves or others in the church to be abused. We never allow that in the name of putting family first. When we think about those kinds of situations where you know, there's abuse happening and someone says, you need to put the family first, you, you, don't, you need to not talk about this. What's going on in those situations is that the person who's hushing, who's usually a leader, is not following the example of Christ. So you know, Christ is first getting down, getting dirty, first becoming a human, humbling himself, and then also in the upper room, washing his disciples' feet. He's setting the example of serving and sacrificing and then asking his disciples to do the same. In those situations of abuse and whether the leader is perpetrating it or just silencing it, generally what's going on is they're asking the church members to sacrifice. They're asking them to do the washing, so to speak, But they're not willing to do it themselves so i just wanted to include that caveat because i think while christ is is definitively asking us to put the family first that never means that uh what we need to that when we're encountering these kinds of situations of abuse that putting the family first means you know hushing that up What, what that actually does is it hurts both the abused individual and the family that there's no benefits flowing down to anyone in that case so i think you know, that helps us hopefully think somewhat about how to incorporate the love command into our lives as members of an individual society but we also might still be thinking about like people who have families what does the love command mean if if we're putting the forever family first above our you know, above our natural families, like, that sounds really hard. And yeah, (laughs) it sounds really hard. I I agree. Uh, It's very hard to hear that God's family comes before my natural family, before my wife and kids and parents and things like that. I think it's especially hard in a pandemic year when, like, you know, most of us have been stuck at home with our families and sometimes We haven't been very happy about that because maybe they've been driving us nuts, but also it feels like they're the only people we have a lot of the time. And so to say you have to put the forever family above those people is a really strong challenge. I think there is really good news in this though, which is that we can relate to our natural family as members of the forever family. Just because there's this priority structure that Christ has given to us doesn't mean that these things are exclusive. So parents, I can talk to you for a second. As a parent, I think this really helps us understand how to structure the goal of our parenting and how to make decisions in the day to day. So when I think about, you know, parenting Lucy and Maggie, my kids, I can I can make a choice. In the long run, am I more concerned about them, you know, eventually being close to me and close to my wife and like growing up having really good relationships with us? Or am I more concerned about them knowing Jesus and through him knowing the Father and walking in the Spirit? It's got to be the latter one. If it's not, I'm going to fail them as a parent. If I, if I do put that first, if I do put their relationship with Christ and knowledge of the Father and walking in the Spirit first and make decisions in the day-to-day that are going to help parent them towards that. I think in the long run, the benefit's going to flow to me that we're going to be close together because as adults, when they have that close relationship with Christ, we're going to be able to grow together and bond over that. But if I put myself and my, my wife, if we, put our, if we put ourselves first in the, those parenting priorities, actually I'm going to fail my children as someone who's like, trying to disciple them in that relationship. Students, I think a lot of you are probably entering a new phase of life in your relationship with your parents. A lot of times when you're in college, what you're experiencing is that the way you relate to your parents is more as a friend or a contemporary or an equal than ever before. And that can be a really bumpy transition a lot of the time for, for you and your parents. Like, it's, it's hard, it's hard. I think one way I can encourage you is that if your parents know Christ, you can relate to each other over that. You can relate to each other through that and share, you know, like, what are you reading in Scripture? You can pray together. You can bond together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a way that that transition can be richer and uh, more, like, stable and really more beneficial to both of you than it would be otherwise. So I think this news is still like especially hard if your family members don't know Christ. Whether you know your immediate or extended family members and none of my extended family knows Christ. So this has definitely been something that's uh, been a lot of cause for prayer and, and heartache throughout my life. But one thing that has been a source of great encouraged, encouragement to me in that is from the members of my forever family. While I've been here at Mercy House, I've seen a lot of people who also have family members who don't know Christ, who have been really faithful in witnessing to them in a loving, compassionate, and gentle, but really consistent way. And sometimes we've seen fruit come out of that, where members of those families have come into our, our church body here, and sometimes we haven't, and we continue to pray and, and to be faithful. So I think if, if you're in that spot where this news feels especially hard because of, what, you know, where your natural family is, I just encourage you to reach out to other people in the church who might be in similar places and, and you can encourage each other in that and, and take, other people, uh, take other people as a model, take other, other people's advice as well. So I want to conclude right now by just thinking practically about how we now at Mercy House can be washing each other's feet. This is the commandment that Christ has given us, so how can we do it? And I have a few suggestions. I, I want to talk about three ways that I think practically we can be washing each other's feet. One way is share the wealth. So if you remember in this passage, we, we learned that uh, all of the disciples are sharing literally all of their wealth together. They, they have a common purse and that was a common practice that we saw re- repeated in the church uh, in Acts, in Acts chapter 4. They shared everything in kind. And that's probably not feasible for us here in uh, you know 20th, 20, 20 what century are we in? <laughs> I was about to say 20th century. but uh, in you know, present day Massachusetts. Uh, but there are ways that we can do this still for each other, that we can share things in kind. One way is by giving. When we give... Uh, cheerfully and faithfully as members of the church, we're bringing together our resources to share things in kind for projects that we are taking on together. And some of those projects are like here in the building. Some of them are programs we're doing in the church. Some, th- some of them are like giving to other churches and encouraging other church bodies that way. Some of them are like uh, helping church family like families in our church who are in need through the benevolence fund. These are all ways that we're sharing things in kind by by giving regularly and cheerfully. But it's not like just that. Like there are other ways that we can do this. We can serve each other in practical ways. So like when people have surgeries in a, in the church or just are overwhelmed or you know there's a new baby born, we have a nice culture at Mercy House of bringing meals. Like that's a a practical way in which you share things in kind. You're, it costs money, you know, like grocery money and time and effort. And like, but that's a really good way to, to do this, to wash each other's feet. But also, I think there are spiritual ways to do this, using each other's gifts. You know, last week I talked about how each of you has spiritual gifts that you've been given as Christians. And the New Testament doesn't make a strong distinction between material and spiritual gifts when it comes to building each other up. So I would, I guess once again, challenge you to think about what are your gifts and are you hoarding those gifts? Are you just keeping it to yourself or are you using it to build each other up and in what ways can you do that? So, that, so that's one thing, is just sharing the wealth that you have, whether material or, or spiritual or just time, things like that. Another thing is to lovingly rebuke sin, and this is a really hard one uh, to think about, and I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about it next week, but Christ gives us a model for it in in Matthew 18.15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So I say lovingly because you want to know where your own heart is before you go to talk to somebody about their own sin. Christ says what you should have in mind is gaining your brother or sister in Christ. That The reason you're rebuking sin is to try and pursue them and to pursue unity with people. So if you want to talk to somebody about their sin and and you you check your own heart and the reason you're wanting to do it is because you're angry at them, or you're trying to get one over on them or something like that, then like, don't. like, Stop in your tracks, please. But if, you, if, you, if someone sinned against you and you love them and you want to gain back the unity in that relationship, then talk to them. This is a way that we really are helping wash each other. As we're stumbling through this process of sanctification, we're, we still have sin that we need to deal with in each other's lives. And a way that we can faithfully and lovingly help each other do that is by pointing to the sin in each other's lives in a way that's, that's loving and gentle. But in that same chapter, uh, Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone when they, when they sin against us? So, you know, I, I can go rebuke my brother, but like if he keeps sinning against me, isn't there like a, a max number where I can just like say forget about that guy? And Jesus tells him No. Forgive without limits. So that's another way that we can wash each other's feet. And so I want you to also just think right now, uh, in a minute we're going to hear from uh, Steve Harrington about some of his own experience of fellowship in the church and just a, a short testimony of how he's experienced love and unity in the church in, uh, in the time that he's been a part of the Forever family. But I would challenge you, whether right now, or sometime later today to think about how today or this week, you can apply one of these one of these things. How can you share the wealth with someone in particular in Mercy House? Is there someone who has sinned against you and you've just been ignoring it and the, the relationship is uh, in some way broken or damaged and you haven't gone to talk to them about it? Can you talk to them this week? Or have you sinned against someone and you need to go and address that sin and ask for forgiveness? So what can you do today is really what I I want you to think about. So right now we're going to hear from Steve. Do we have that set up? Awesome. All right, I'll take a step aside.
1: Okay. I think it's my time to talk. Um, Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, A lot of good stuff there. A lot of good challenges. Thank you. Um, Part of what a testimony does is show how God works through experience. Uh, And I wanted to share briefly some experiences both in unity and in a time of disunity in a church split from many years ago and just how God worked in it. So, first of all, I've seen a lot of unity in my life and have noticed that when there is unity, um, a lot of the mission that you're on gets accomplished. Uh, and I started thinking about it. Personally, I think about how my parents uh, united to raise me and uh, disciple me and teach me how to be a contributing, working, functioning Christian adult and parent and to, how to grow in Christ to be, and uh, they led me to the Lord, uh, or how Laura and and I are united in raising godly kids and uh, just to be good Christians, to be healthy Christian adults, and how we made have first made our focus to have a relationship right with God. And from that, we could then unite in him so that we could accomplish that mission. Um, we were a maker of some disciple makers. Um, or even when I was on a sports team, and we were united on a mission to be, to uh, to go on and win a game or a championship. Uh, in all these missions and so many more, the blessings that comes out isn't just the victory of an event or uh, a college graduation, but the blessings are being part of that forever family about being united and a mission together um, accompanied by sweet times of fellowship and bonding and friendship. Um, so my first point is to uh, you know, get on mission and be united with each other in the church and in Christ. And uh, also in other walks of life you may have as well. Um, I wanted to share a personal experience of unity and disunity in a church setting. Um, and these are always tricky, they can there can be hurt feelings. And so I picked a time from a long time ago when when uh, it, it will be a safe thing to share. Um, But once upon a time when I was uh, 10 or so, uh, my parents and their best friends, friends they had come to know Christ with had realized the church they were attending really wasn't following the Bible. It wasn't gospel-centered. Talking with the church leaders uh, didn't go anywhere. Um, So together they felt called to start a church and they didn't have any money or any idea how to start it. well, it wasn't very long until my mom and her friend were driving around in Granby when they came upon a farm for sale. Um, they stopped the car. They walked up, knocked on the door of the farmhouse and told the uh, owner of the property that they felt the Lord was calling them to buy this property for a church. Um, then they sat down with Joe, the pig farmer, and they shared their vision and the gospel. And then they gave him a down payment of $50 and went on their way. Um, um Incidentally, Joe came to know the Lord through all of this. Um, My mom came home and told my dad about this. and Well, to say he was speechless and stunned doesn't even sum it up. Um, He didn't have an idea how to process this. Um, The farm was expensive. Uh, It was $50,000 for 40 acres, which today might as well have been $2 million. And there were only two struggling couples and no church body. Um, Well, what happened... From that was just truly miraculous. From that point on, everything became focused on being able a, of a uh, church focused on Jesus and the scriptures, one that would not get bogged down with infightings of denominations and give a platform to share the gospel and and uh, have, have a unified family, a church family. So the church met at our house. Friends were invited. The folks they thought might come, they didn't. But new people came. The pastor was called. Uh, there was little or nothing to pay them. They lived in the in-law apartment downstairs with their kids, and it was a pretty full house. And and during this time, the finances were gathered, things were planned. More and more people came. Um, A community was developing. And miraculously, um, this farm was purchased. And there were many good years of a small, healthy church. Um, It was just amazing. And uh, after a while, the first pastor left and a new pastor came on. I can't tell you all the details. I remember initially things went pretty well with the new pastor. But after a while, something wasn't right. Uh, What was coming out of the pulpit just didn't square with the Bible. It wasn't right. Um, It wasn't about little things, it was about big central issues. And the pastor was insistent he was right. Well, there was a lot of concern about what was being said, and it became impossible to have a unified solution to dealing with the issue. I hope none of you have ever been in this situation, but once this starts happening, um, it isn't easy. And you see, the only way this works is if everyone is truly united and and walking with each other and with the Lord. Uh, First and foremost, we had to have Jesus, the gospel and the Bible at the center, the ultimate authority. And when that isn't coming from the top, it's virtually impossible to pull people together. You know, I don't remember a lot of the specifics now, but I do remember the feelings, the feelings of anger, frustration, the hurt feelings, and watching the family and the church just get ripped apart. Uh, Last week Patrick shared with us Ephesians 4, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, Well this wasn't happening and certainly the pastor was at the heart of the issue in this case. There wasn't a willingness to listen, there wasn't there was an unwillingness to look at the scriptures. And once there isn't unity and things fall apart, things fall apart. And just like Patrick said, if we unless people are forgiving each other and walking in humility and reunite, you enter on a very destructive path. And when people disagree, first thing that happens is they want everybody to be on their side. They want to defend their position. Some people want to be right. Some people wanted to protect the pastor no matter what. Some people wanted to protect the church. Some people wanted to be self-righteous and angry. And I mean, that's kind of wrong. And once everyone, and I think the key point here is everyone. I think we could talk about somebody else, but it's when everyone doesn't agree to unite behind the, uh, with each other in love and behind the authority of the scriptures fully yielding to the Lord and walking as we're called to walk as Christians, then things, things will fall apart. And lots of bad behavior gets worse anger, dissension, um, bitterness, drawing up sides, battle lines, strategy. Uh, there wasn't a lot of loving each other going on. Um, you know, while I was writing this, I got a phone call. Um, three houses at Prudence Island, I met, a place I've spent many summers, were destroyed by fire just, just the other day. It was awful. And it, and it struck me uh, that it came during, while I was writing this, that once their disunity, when, when there is disunity and when we don't forgive and reconcile, it can really be just as terribly destructive as this fire that uh, I saw. Well, my parents and their best friend's relationship in this was tragically hurt. They couldn't talk about things anymore. Um, you know, I'll never know the specifics about what, why they didn't. They were gracious and left me out of it. And in fact, they were really building the future seeds of unity by stopping things right there and not spreading it. And then my own friendship with her son could have been threatened too. Um, but thankfully, our parents had the goal of unity and not having us separate. And uh, so they didn't try to get us to be on their side. You know, we're held together in Christ and he is the Lord and had, we are in unity. And when we give to any, into any speech or actions that divide people, uh, we become a destroyer. So I'm really sensitive. I, I, I've been through a a couple splits in churches and I'm really sensitive about what can pull a ch- part of church and destroy things. And so I'd ask each and every one of you, as you have questions and criticisms and preferences, things you'd like to be done differently in the church or just in any community or right? in marriage, in family and in friendships, just ask the Holy Spirit to guide your mind and heart and ask yourself when you have a thought, because it's from our thoughts where all our speech comes from. What's the point of what I'm gonna say? What's its purpose? Is the purpose to build up and encourage? Or is the purpose to promote me, to make me look good, get my own way, to separate people? Or is this gonna bring people together in a godly way? Um, You know, James James three and five and six says, the, the tongue is a small membrane that boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So I would just ask all of you, in in all of your settings, just ask yourself before spreading um, your word, just Realize how powerful what you say can be. And before spreading situations about people, just ask yourself again, what is the point of what I'm saying? So I guess that some of that's kind of negative, but I just, uh, it's, it's testimony of what I went through. Um, but how did God work in all this? Well, my parents and their friends were strong Christians and over time, in a year or so, they were able to forgive each other and their friendships grew and they were strengthened, um, and they remained great friends the rest of their lives. They sang together, they did all sorts of things. God built up the church and place. God planted other people in other churches where they helped those churches give up. And God turned my heart to him. And uh, you go through something like that, it's really easy to be disillusioned with Christianity and the church. Uh, I could have walked away, but through God's grace and his Holy Spirit drawing me to him, I didn't. Um, Just like all of our sins, God takes messes and he uses it all for his glory and he he continues to build up his church. So thanks for listening Um, and make walking in the spirit and love and unity with each other be your primary aim. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Steve. All right, so... That was a really helpful way of thinking about some examples of of times where uh, people maybe didn't put the family first, but also how we can put the family first, I think. And each week when we're coming together to take communion, what we're doing is remembering when Christ put the family first in the most ultimate way. And, you know, didn't just wash our feet, but made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be washed Completely. And his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could enter into the family and so that we could then imitate him and that we could share in the relationship that he has with his Father and with the Spirit and in the rule and reign that he's going to have in his kingdom to come. So if you're a member of the Forever Family, if you are in Christ, we invite you to take communion this morning. There's a a cup and some bread under your seat and just in your own time. If you're not a member of the Forever Family, then we just invite you to take this time to pray or to think about what you've heard this morning and we'd love to be able to talk about it with you. So let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to be able to meet and to think on your word. We thank you that Your son came and humbled himself and did not leave us destitute and just wallowing in our sin, but considered unity and connection with us and family a worthwhile thing to be gained, and so humbled himself and set an example for us so that we could be part of your forever family and look forward to an eternity with you. And we ask that in your spirit, you would empower us today, this week, this month, and, and continually to walk in the spirit, to wash each other's feet, to in practical ways serve each other and put others first in this family. Uh, just teach us how to do that, Lord, because it does not come to us naturally. We ask these things through our Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God, forever and ever. Amen.